dig this real gone show for a crazy thriller. It's Monsters A Go-Go. A horror thriller with the Go-Go Beat. Live on stage from Hollywood. See the teenage Frankenstein. See. Help. I need somebody. Help. The Beatles mystically transformed. See. Hollywood's golden Go-Go girl, Pat Collins. See. Ethereal materialization of 007 as James Bond. It's the kookiest and the spookiest. It's where the action is. See? Monsters a go go. Terror walks off the stage and into the audience. Free. Two for one pass to anyone who can sit through the entire show. And it's all live. This is the only show that gets away with murder. So come early and get a seat. If you're late, we may put you in a coffin. See? Monsters a go go. Monsters a go go. Monsters a go go.
Still demons, new demons, better than the old ones, yeah. But still demons, I got my degree in demonology. I got my degree in demonology. Let me say this, every one of you young people, every one of you, and those two, sit around listening to a, to a radio, some rock music, and some dirty radio station that plays this dirty, filthy rock music. Bent on destroying America. You're going to face God over every one of those sorry things you listen to. Yeah, let's dive in. It looks like we're good to go. Okay. Okay. Three, two, one. All right, everybody. That was the great Danny Baranowski <laughs> with uh, with grave throbbing. But this was not what I expected, given the title. By the way, I know grave throbbing. That is a that's a blackened thrash song title. Yes. This was really cool, though. It's synthwave, right? Yeah, massive synth synthwave. This is this is uh, the the new genre. It's uh, synthwave. So I, I'm not, you know, uh, I've if 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 we were doing an honest podcast tonight, yeah, um, it would be all soundtrack music from my end because uh, that's all I've been listening to. I've been listening to a lot of it too, and I think we have uh, a couple of things on the show. It's not the only thing that I've been listening to, but it is something that I've been listening to. Yeah. It's one, I, of, one of the only things I've been listening to. I, I do really like, um, a lot of the synthwave stuff. And in the beginning, it's funny cause it's the exact opposite of the beginning. The thing that I didn't like about synthwave is that there was, that there was no vocals and that annoyed me. But now I'm much more inclined to, to seek out music without vocals. Me too. <laughs> I think I've heard everything that everybody has to say. Yeah, I, I'm I'm done with people saying things. It's yeah. not, uh, you know. Uh, so you know, it's uh, instrumental music is 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 working for me now. The challenge uh, with for for synthwave, I think, is um, is live because I've gone to some live synthwave shows, and visually, there's not a whole lot happening. So you know, one of them, uh, there was a guy with like a spaceship on his head with you know lights flashing and stuff yeah which you know that's amusing enough but he still wasn't doing anything right because his music was all pre-recorded yeah so uh i've saw uh perturbator who were like one of the bigger synthwave acts and they you know they they have like they have keyboards at least you know so they're playing keyboards but again watching people play keyboards isn't that engaging you know no so, so there is a challenge live for synthwave, but musically, uh, um, it's as far as new genres go, it's a very promising one. I think we one of the things about synthwave is that they're influenced by soundtrack music, um, and soundtrack music itself was never intended to be a live experience. So right, you know, it kind of doesn't translate, and there's really nothing that between you know a Marshall amplifier and electric guitar is really the best live experience for, in my opinion you know, just a rock and, you know, a wall of amps and some guitars and a wall of amps and synthesizers, although it can be powerful, uh, doesn't really hold up as much for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I get you, once you get used to the sound of it, it doesn't, it doesn't consider you a thrill. Um, 
So, although and although you're right, I mean, like you know, um, we might be looking at a <laughs> future without live music anyway. So, what's the difference? Yeah, at this point, you know, I've been at home, so me too. Uh, so. You know, that's why soundtrack music has kind of been really. Uh, a great thing because I know instrumental music in general. I agree. I've been listening to a lot of instrumental music um, because it's uh, I'm home and it's uh, you know, it fits in with what, with the background of it blends in. Welcome everyone to advanced demonology, your guide to the darkest corners of rock and roll. I'm your old pal, Ken, AKA legendary rock and roll writer, Sleazegrinder. And there he is, everybody leader of the Swilson good time rock and roll band. It's Swilson. Yes. Uh, every so often, Swilson and I get together and we dig deep into our record collections, pull out some, uh, some sonic bullets to shoot at you. And, uh, we've got a, we've got a great lineup tonight. Some of it is in fact soundtrack material. Some of it. <laughs> it is. Some of it is the exact opposite. So we'll get into it and we'll tell some stories along the way. Uh, let's dive right in. Swilson, what do you say? I, I think that's the appropriate thing to do. We're going to start out with uh, Bill Haley. Now, a song called Straight Jacket. Yes. Now, it's funny because I, I equate him, Bill Haley, and the Comets, so much with Rock Around the Clock, you kind of forget that they even had any other songs. Yeah. They're just so uh, recognized for that. Uh, so this one, it never dawned on me, like, Eh, what what, uh, what does Bill Haley sound like when he's not doing Rock Around the Clock? Now I know. Now, the lyrics on this one are very easy to remember, which I like. <laughs> yeah. It's a lyrical masterpiece, actually. Yeah. Um, and if you listen to it, I, I imagine if you had a, uh extended remix of this, it would put you in a straight jacket. <laughs> straight jacket, straight jacket, straight jacket. Everybody sing along. Straight jacket. Yeah. I uh, I really admired the uh, proto-punk mental illness sentiment uh, and also the confidence they had in the refrain of this song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, this is pre-rock around the clock. So this is from uh, an album called The Essex Recordings, uh, 1951 to 54, which is everything they did before they did rock. No, that's no slight against rock around the clock because that's a great song. Sure. But um this is a uh, a really uh, this is all their early stuff. It's a great collection. I love it. I Bill Haley was an early obsession of mine um, uh, when I was a kid because my father I had inherited my father's forty five collection, which was all fifties rock, and that's really yeah. how I got really into music. Let me um, ask you this: hey, what what I, what I found very um, what I found so interesting about this song, obviously, is the repetition. Um, were there other songs? in the era that you can think of that also um, utilize repetition in such a way? I, I feel like there was like these songs uh, and I'm, I'm that, I, I mean, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I do feel like there's these songs that were just like one word refrains, almost like, um, you know, like tequila and stuff like that. Tequila, yeah. Yeah. Like uh, later on. Um, that but, was later on. Like but, some of the stuff from like the, um, Las Vegas grind. Yeah. Series, you know, like the stripper music, you know, they would kind of like throw the same refrain in over and over. And again. I feel like there was like blues jams, like harmonica blues jams that they would say like one word. And yeah. I, you know, I don't know anything to this relentless. <laughs> yeah. This was relentless though. This You're relentless. right. You're right though. It's uh, not only in um, 
you know, the mental illness aspect, but just in like a, you know, the, the, um, relentless, um, repetition is also has a, 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 a punk streak to it. Yeah. I mean, this was clearly designed to incite a lot yeah, of audience sure. to get them angry, you know? Yeah. I mean? And so, uh, and there's, it's got tongue in cheek and they know they're driving you crazy with the song. Right. I, I was just very impressed with it. All of it. Yeah. Uh, so. it, overall, it's really quite an experience. <laughs> yeah. We've really, we've really talked it up. So I hope it lives up to it for everybody. <laughs> Uh, is this with or without the comets? Uh, I believe this is, you know, with the comets, I, I don't know, or whatever, you know, I think that, uh, the comets were kind of a revolving door sure. uh, of musicians, but I believe this is with the comets. I could be wrong. Well, it's Bill Haley and the boys, whoever they may be with a straight jacket, everybody opening us up on advanced demonology.
209 to tower. Coming in. Set him up with Schlitz. Sorry, fresh out. How about another brand? Negative. Proceeding to alternate airport. When you're out of Schlitz, you're out of beer. There's just one Schlitz. Yeah, yeah. Nothing else comes near. When you're out of Schlitz, you're out of beer. Schlitz, the most carefully brewed beer in the world. From Schlitz of Milwaukee. When you're out of Schlitz, you're out of beer. You're out of beer. Ladies Garment Workers Union, but a lot of her jobs have disappeared. A lot of the clothes Americans are buying for women and kids are imports. They're being made in foreign places. When the work's done here, we can support our families and pay our taxes and buy the things other Americans make. That's what it means when the label says union. Look for the union label. When you are buying a coat dress or balls, remember somewhere.
Chips and Airport 77, Sunday on NBC.
Asian faces going to so many places where the weather is much better and the food is so much cheaper. Well, I help her with her baggies, for the baggage is so heavy. I hear the plane is ready by the gateway to take my love away. And I can't believe that she really knows me. And it's getting me so. It's getting me so.
All right, everybody, we're back. Now, Swilson, one of the reasons I like doing this show so much is that we get to hear bands that I've known about my whole life but never listened to before. Right. And it's usually you. You're the, the brave the brave spelunker. Because <laughs> I've seen Motor Records at the record store since the 70s, but I've never been compelled to listen to them. Their sleeve design was always pretty lackluster to me. Yes. But... This is a this is a, a pretty great gem. It's got new wave. It's got power pop. It's got glam. Supposing this song has it all. Yeah, I thought so. And then also, you know, I keep I kept waiting for the double entendre, but it's really about an airport. It really is about an airport. The name of the song is called Airport. The name of the band is is Motors. I think this was what from around 1978 or so. Yes, and especially towards the bridge, to me. Weirdly, this also sounded like ghost in places, and uh, and then and then when I was listening to it, I could hear a ghost cover this song. Yeah, I could too. So uh, I thought that was an interesting thing too. And again, it was like I've always seen Motors records around, but it was like it never seemed like something that would appeal to me. But this was uh, this was a great jam. So thank you, Swilson. How is it that you chanced upon a Motors record? Well, I had. I had bought a like one of those um, like AM Gold hits of 1978 vinyl okay. LPs um, yep. from a thrift store recently. Specifically, it was like a 19 hits of the day, but it was 1978, and and I this song was on it, and uh, I was kind of amazed by the cocktail of uh, vibes that was yeah. going on there. And I also found like the lead singer was like there was um he was kind of rough in the way he sang a little bit like it yeah. was they were trying to go for good sweet harmonies but he couldn't quite do it yeah and then i also was like this should just be playing in every airport every <laughs> time i go yeah um their uh former guy uh guys were formerly in ducks deluxe which uh, is a great pub rock band um from the 70s i highly recommend ducks deluxe but some of the guys were in ducks deluxe and they headed off into a into this band, which was going off into a slightly new wave vibe, but yeah. they were clearly of the time. They were they didn't know whether they should be uh, 10 CC or, or um, you know, the knack or whatever. There's a lot of stuff going on in this song, right. yeah. Um, but I, I thought it was a great song, and I, and it was weird, and it, um, it was a big hit in England. It made it to number four, but uh, didn't really help the band's career apparently. Well. It was uh, it was a, a a great surprise, and uh, and like I said, it's always <laughs> it's always fun when one of these songs from a band that I've known forever but never listened to pops up on the show. Yeah, I figured you would know them because you were very cognizant in 1978. I was, but I was like, I my just seeing their records at the record store, I was like, this is going to be too lightweight for me. Yeah. And you know, at the time you were probably right, but now, yeah. you know, you're into extreme no, lightweight stuff. Exactly. It, would, it <laughs> definitely at the time I would have been like, Ugh, no, thanks. Cause this was, you know, in 1978, it was, you know, with Judas Priest and, and Black Sabbath and yeah. Alice and Cooper even, and ACDC, you know. And so. even in 98, you wouldn't have been ready for this. No, Neither would no, have I. Really. You know? No, I had to mellow into a lot of this stuff. Yeah, so. I did too. And it, you know, it was, it was, we've talked about it. I mean, we're constantly seeking out extreme forms of music. Yeah. And so extreme mellow is uh, is definitely something that yeah there is nothing particularly edgy about the motors but it it I don't know this song really this works now yeah, well, this is, of course is just um, scraping the surface will you dive deeper into the world 
of the motors. I will, but I feel like I'm going to hit my head on the bottom pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. But at least we will have airport. Yeah. Uh, before that, it was uh, Johnny Frierson with, have you been good to yourself? It's a good question. It is a good question. Now, Johnny Frierson was an interesting guy. Uh, for sure. He was a soul singer that worked for Stax in the 60s, and he had a band with his sister, Wendy Renee, called the Draples. But ultimately, uh, Wendy uh, broke out as a soul singer, and which ended the band. Um, she never ended up releasing an album, but there's a singles compilation from 2012 on uh, Light in the Attic um, called After Love Comes the Tears, which I, I bought, I don't know, around December. And, uh, and I highly recommend it. It's a great, great soul record. Um, so check out Wendy Renee. That's uh, Johnny's sister. But anyway, in the late 60s, Johnny got radicalized and joined the, right. black, he joined the black paramilitary group uh, that I wasn't aware of before called the Invaders. Which, oh, wow. Which were like, obviously like the Black Panthers, really like a splinter group. Yeah, but, but with a way more direct name. Much more direct. The Invaders. <laughs> So there he was, uh, you know, getting into the, you know, the, uh, the guns and the revolution. And then he got drafted, went to Vietnam. But and, he was, uh, he was, wait a minute. Yeah. He was radicalized. He was into right. guns and revolution. Right. But when Uncle Sam sent yeah, him his right, draft yeah. notice, he, he said, went. you know what, guys? Yeah, I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. <laughs> I'll come back. I'll be back. <laughs> and then we'll get back into the, you know, the machine guns and stuff. But I got to go. Uh, so amazing um, and and uh like a lot of guys he came back suffering from ptsd uh, which he never really overcame and then a few years later his um his son died when he was only uh, 16 uh which added to his woes so as a form of therapy he started writing uh gospel songs and uh, and making homemade cassettes that he would sell around Memphis. You know, he would oh, just re- cool. record them at home, make the tapes, bring them around to the convenience store, you know, yeah, uh, the pawn shop, wherever, you know. Um, so, and they never really had any official releases, you know, beyond him just bringing them to the store to sell. But, uh, and again, in 2012, somebody found a couple of his cassettes at a thrift store and sent them to Light in the Attic. Um, and they loved him. Johnny was dead by then, but they uh, worked with his daughter to compile a collection of the best of the home recordings, which uh, it just came out um, actually just a few weeks ago. And this is the title song, Have You Been Good to Yourself? And honestly, it's just a nice reminder to be good to yourself. That's why he wrote it as a reminder to himself to be good to himself, because obviously he's a guy suffering from PTSD. Uh, and these are some basic tenets. Am I getting enough exercise? Am I eating the right food? He was I, way ahead of his time with am this. I, am I sleeping eight hours a day? And these are all, exactly, these are all things that, uh, you know, um, we still talk about today. Like, uh, the, you know, basic sort of uh, health requirements that yeah. everybody should be working on. He was, he was proto-wellness. Exactly. These are all <laughs> important things, you know. <laughs> I like it. I like it because it's a guy trying to keep himself together. And yeah, you can feel that in the vibe of the song, which I really like. I mean, you yeah. can tell that he's not preaching. He's like, I got to do this too. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, it's about, it's about survival. And, uh, and, and I like that a lot. Um, definitely check out, uh, the, the album. It's, it's really good. 
Um, obviously, it's a lot of this stuff is just more straight up gospel than this. This is more just like a self help kind of thing. But um, anyway, really good. Johnny Fireson, have you been good to yourself? Before that, the weed with by the way, and none of that is spelled like you think it is. No, it isn't. It's it's by the way, W H E Y, and the weed is W E A D. Uh, this is um. Moody lost uh, masterpiece, uh, Moody Teen Angst from 1966. Total jammer. Some uh, Beatlesque harmonies, some snarly garage punk guitars. Yeah, it's got it all. I, I, just when you think you've heard every great uh, Nuggets garage uh, song, you haven't. You know, um, it's kind of endless. Well, I mean, what a fruitful period that time was. Um, you know, 1966 to 68, really 67. I got, wow. It's only like a year, right? The, yeah. 65 to 67. It was like two yeah. years. It was like 10,000 garage rock songs. I know it's insane. Recorded. It's insane. Um, but anyway, um, this is a lost, uh, acetate. Um, so the guy from cheater slicks worked at a record store. I, I hope I get this right, but I think the guy from cheater slicks recently in 2016 yeah was working at a record store in ohio are cheater slicks from ohio do you know they are yeah they they lived in boston for a while in fact um the dude uh, tom i think worked at a record store here in in town in boston which is where i met him and they were actually on uh my first public access tv show uh back in the early 90s uh-huh. But yeah, he was a record store guy back then. But then they moved back. So yeah, they moved back to Ohio, wherever the fuck they were from. So some dude came in the store, apparently had a whole stack of stuff that he was trying to sell, and they were going through it and listening to it, and he just pulled out this weird acetate um, and played it. And uh, I don't know if the guy from Cheater Six is involved or he sent it to Slovenly Records, uh, but Slovenly put it out as a 45 in 2016. I bought it on 45 and I, I've been playing it since then, but uh, don't think I played it on the show. And uh, I was going through, I recently uh, just bought a record shelf and put all my records onto a shelf. Okay. Uh, which was a, you know, massive undertaking. Sure. <laughs> um, and I found this one and I, well, I've been listening to a ton of records, but I, this one, I was like, oh, I think we should play this. I love this. Uh, it's just great. You know, great, great lost jam. Um, and one of it's that apparently it was never released. It was just a one-off acetate. So, um, great song. And P.S. Just one factoid that I, one uh, anecdote that uh, from that day that I I just remembered is that dude, the Cheetah Slicks, the main Cheetah Slicks guy. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if his name is Tom, but I I remember it being Tom. Anyway, okay. Um, did a little interview portion and noticed. <laughs> That his hair was matted with blood, you know, <laughs> and uh, like so. Uh, what's up with your head? And he, for whatever, is he, they were maybe from the next town over, and we were in Cambridge. So um, my co-host uh, Dimitri, they stayed at his house um, the night before, and um, and he was like, uh, "Yeah, we we got drunk, and um, Dimitri hit me in the head with a frying pan." And uh, and Dimitri just shrugged, and then we carried on with the conversation. But his, his head was a big mass of 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 blood. That's um, hitting somebody in the head with a frying pan is something that only happens in cartoons. I wonder yeah. if that's what they were just trying to experience. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, he just kind of shrugged it off, and then we we continued on. And uh, 
And but there was, you know, it was the it was the early nineties. We were all on a death trip back then. So. Yeah, we really were. We <laughs> we, we thought there was, uh, you know, I was talking to somebody um, about uh, the nineties, and you know, I I there's a lot of music I loved from the nineties, a lot of music I don't love from the nineties. I I didn't, you know, I would I while I was in the nineties, I wished I was in the seventies. But had I known uh, the entire universe was going to change in about 10, 15 years, yeah. not be recognizable right. as I know it, I would have enjoyed it more. Yeah, me too. I, I blew the 90s. I, you know, I spent most of, most of the 90s in, in rehab. And, and, when I, and when I look back um, you know, um, with nostalgia to the 90s, I'm, I'm looking back at everybody else's 90s, not mine. Cause, cause mine yeah. were kind of miserable, but I know that life was actually pretty good in the nineties, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, I participated in a lot of fun stuff, but I also had like a chip on my shoulder Yeah, um, and a bad attitude towards things. And like, had I known what the world was going to become, like I would have went and enjoyed like everything. Yeah. Me too. You know, I mean, I wouldn't have had an attitude about like different types of th- music and people. I had a bad attitude in the nineties. I didn't, you know, when I look back, I was like, you know, that was the end of the 20th century. I thought the 21st century was going to resemble the 20th century. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't resemble it at right. all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like, it's like waking up in a parallel universe every day. And so I, you know, I would have went back and gone, well, I would have tried to enjoy this. Yeah. I, ultimately, I, I, I blew the 90s because I picked the wrong um, addiction, you know, instead of alcohol, I should have went with, uh, cocaine. I think I would have been a lot better off. You would have been, it, the, the recovery probably would have been swifter and yeah. the parties would have been better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and I would have gotten yeah. it done, you know, it would have been more. Productive. Yeah. You would have got a lot of shit done. You would have, you, no. you would have been very productive. Uh, say Levy, that was the weed everybody with, <laughs> by the way, everything spelt like, uh, an eighties metal band would. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, guys yeah. ahead of their time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, before that, it was Strychnine with uh, Jack the Ripper. This was a I one. And this, done, song. this was a, a one and done single from a Cleveland band. Strychnine formed in the mid seventies, but didn't get around to releasing their one and only single until nineteen eighty, and this was it. Uh, not a lot of info on them, although they did play a reunion gig in uh, twenty sixteen. They're all still alive. Um, anyway, uh, the song pardon the pun, is a total ripper. Dude sounds like James Hetfield fronting a punk version of the Alice Cooper band. <laughs> that's what, that's what sounds it sounds like. like. It really sounds like that. This is what, that's exactly what it sounds like. And for 1980, yeah, that's I was trying awesome. to place the vocals. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, it's totally yeah, It is awesome. I thought this was from the 90s. Nope, it's from 1980, and if this was uh, if this was any indication of what the band was like, I, I'm I'm sure that they were amazing, and it's kind of it is kind of amazing that they've uh, they've been scrubbed from history because uh, this song is a real scorcher. Yeah, do you, you know? Um, no, do people still write songs about Jack the Ripper? I haven't heard any lately. But uh, they were, he was a huge celebrity in the seventies. It was the seventies. You know, the seventies was very, um, you know, it was very occult oriented. There was a lot of it was um, the beginning of the whole true crime thing because there was. Uh, it was in the ether because that's 
that was like the serial killer renaissance <laughs> was the seventies. Yeah, I just I, so, I just read a book about that. It's because of the I lead in the, the golden, in the golden it, age. The lead in the gasoline made people violent, and uh, and because of that, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> there were more serial killers ha- hanging out and, uh, doing their thing in the seventies than any other decade. And uh, you know, and there was just it was just in the air, man. You know, like violence was in the air, and uh, so a band like Strychnine doing a song called Jack the Ripper, it all it all makes sense. Every every couple of years, they yeah, it does. they decided they uh, solved the Jack the Ripper case. In fact, I just read, a, I can't remember now who it was, but it was like, you know, they figured out it was some surgeon or something. But, you know, how, uh, you know, it's been a couple hundred years. I, I, I don't, I think you, you're never really going to know. Strychnine, everybody. Jack the Ripper, beginning of the set. Billy yeah. Lilly with Straight Jacket. All right, Swilson, are you ready for <laughs> best? Are you ready for the best song of the week? Yeah, I am. It really is the best song of the week. All right, so here we go. So you know how the best song of the week is? All of these songs are are great, but one of them has to, you know, be the, the top top notch one. I sent this one back to. I sent this one over to Swilson a couple of weeks, a couple of months back, um, and I was I was looking forward to the next episode so that we could uh, we could play it. Uh, and now here we are. Natalie Bergman is a singer songwriter from Chicago. She has an indie pop band called Wild Bell with her brother. And in 2019, while they were on tour, their father and stepmother were killed in a car crash. Oh, my God. Um, she started working on a solo album shortly thereafter. Now, the family had always been kind of religious. And when she was younger, it's a lot of tragedy in this, this woman's life. Uh, her mom developed uh, brain cancer. So Natalie would play... She's mom was her mom was very religious, so she would play gospel hymns for her mother on the family organ to make her feel better while she was dying of brain cancer at home. So uh, Natalie got into gospel music at a young age from that experience. So now here she is in 2020. Uh, both parents gone, stuck in the pandemic, working on a solo album. So she decides to do a full on gospel record. Uh, the album is is called uh, Mercy. It's coming out uh, on Third Man in May. I think the connection is it's, is that um, she was in a Detroit band called Nomo around 2010. So uh, she must have been in Jack White's orbit, you know, from around around that time, I would imagine. Right. But anyway, uh, the song that we're about to hear, which is called uh, Talk to the Lord, is the first single from, uh, from the album. She's released uh, three songs so far from the record. And they've all been f- fantastic. All three of them are fantastic songs. And uh, she's also done videos for all of them, too. And they all have, uh, Swilson, they all have strong, like, early 70s folk horror slash sex cult vibes, which is an interesting twist because, <laughs> because you know, because this album is... Uh, she means it. I mean, this is the real deal. It's a real gospel record, but it's aesthetically it's like, you know, the, the videos are like a, uh, a John Roland film or something. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's really yeah, there's an element of, 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 of horror to it, which, so, you know, to all religion there is, I guess. Right. Of course. Right. Now, will this album kick off like a hot alternative girl gospel wave? Swilson? I don't know. Let's hope. 
but it, it might. Let's I, pray. Let's pray. That'd be fine with me. <laughs> because like I said, I mean, you know, this, this song and this album is the real deal. She really does mean it. Uh, and by the way, it has always kind of blown my mind that when people who have endured a lot of tragedy uh, remain religious, like, and in some cases, like Natalie, she digs even further in. I don't really get that. If everybody dies on you, it didn't, doesn't that mean that Jesus didn't help you much? Yeah, I, I mean, I understand. I, I, I've tried to understand it too. I mean, I was actually going to, you work with a lot of people that, um, and you yourself have been through to, you know, uh, substance abuse, the substance recovery yeah. um, community has a strong religious undercurrent or it not does, undercurrent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's overt. Overt, That's, yeah. overt religious. Sure. And I guess, I, I don't know how to figure it out. I guess when, when you have death in your family, as you know, or when you're also a slave to something that you can't control, then you have to relinquish you have to relinquish you're, you're out of control. Yeah. And so you're kind of handing control over to, to a higher power, which I think is where that comes from, where it's like, I've, I've done everything and it doesn't matter. And obviously what I do is not going to make much of a difference. There must be a higher power or perhaps if there is one, I'm going to just pay tribute to it and, and relinquish control of that higher power. So imagine so that's far- where it comes from. Yeah, I mean, so far it's swerved around me. I, you know, both my parents died. You know, I've, I've dealt with addiction. Religion is still swerved around me. Yeah. But I, I will say this. Um, I did have a bit of a, an epiphany when I watched, I forget what the name of it is, but I watched the um, Shane McGowan documentary. That Julian I've heard Temple that's did. very good. It is very good. It's really weirdly constructed because Shane McGowan agreed to do the documentary and then refused to be interviewed. Uh, first he refused to be re-interviewed by Julian Temple and then Julian Temple went like well how about I just have a bunch of your friends um, interview you yeah okay so he gets like Johnny Depp and Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream and a bunch of other people and then he refuses to to, uh, answer any of their questions too so what ends up happening is the basic construction of the documentary is um, is them sitting around smoking and drinking and listening to old interviews with Shane. And then every once in a while, Shane will agree or disagree with what he, he just said in the old interviews. Now, wow. well, chronologically it works out because obviously he had done enough interviews over the years that they were able to piece together the entire history of, uh, of his musical career um, through, through these interviews. But it is just a bunch of guys sitting around drinking while a tape recorder plays, you know, so it's definitely, right. it's a, it's a, it's an interesting construction, but it, it, it works very well. Uh, but anyway, the epiphany that I had is that he was talking about, so he grew up, you know, in this small town in, in, uh, in Ireland and uh, started drinking. I think he said around the, you know, the age of eight or nine years old. And, um, you know, big family all living in a like a you know like a, a cabin kind of house together. Um, you know, working on a farm, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, they'd sit around drinking. They'd throw Shane on on top of the table, and he would you know he'd sing for everybody. You know, um, and for him, it was a really ideal childhood. Now, 
Should a nine-year-old be smoking and drinking? No, of course not. But that was the childhood that he had, and he was very, very fond of his uh, family and the farm and all that kind of stuff. So he was talking about in the in in the uh, the film, one of these um, vintage interviews, uh, that when he was thirteen years old, he read um, he read Karl, Karl Marx's book, and um, because he was always a big uh, you know he's a big reader you know. Um, so he reads Karl Marx and instantly becomes an atheist, you know, like it really, you know, it rocks and socks him. And now he's an atheist. And he, he was talking about how it broke his heart because it meant that he, he was never going to see his um, dead relatives again. Yeah. And it, it never, um, that part of it never really resonated with me. And I never really thought about it from that uh, perspective before. So that is what could be really meaningful to a lot of people with religion. Like that aspect, which seems like such a sort of ridiculous fantasy to me, that aspect of faith, if you believe it, and you come from a, a family where you'd be happy to see them all again after they died. Yeah. You can see how that would be really important to people. Well, now, later, later on, he had found religion again. So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, presumably when he does die, he gets to go be with his, uh, his, his family again. So, you know, um, good for him. But that aspect of it, I had never really considered before. And I was like, okay, that makes a whole lot of sense because that was one of the things that did not sell me on religion when I was very young. Cause in like, you know, first and second grade, I was in Catholic school and that was when they broke the news. Like, guess what? When you die, if you're good, you get to be with your family in heaven forever. And I'm like, Holy shit, I have a very dysfunctional family. <laughs> full of alcoholics and uh and 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 uh you know domestic abuse and all this. Stuff. I do not want to be with these people forever when I die. Holy smokes. So that was one of the things that turned me off from the whole thing. But if I came from this loving family, you know, and then they all started dying on me, I could see why I'd want to, you know, return. So anyway, it gave me a new like little twist on why maybe um, people uh, cling to religion, you know? Well, I relate very strongly to that because I've actually said to that I'm not an atheist. Um, I'm probably an agnostic, but I'm not mm -hmm. an atheist. Um, and it's really because I cannot allow myself to think that I would never see my, some of my family and friends again. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are people who have passed that, you know, I'm, I have left a huge hole in my heart that I think about daily. Um, and the idea of this being nothing being the beyond is not a comfortable thought to me. And it being that I'll never know one way all the only way I'll know is to die. Uh, that I just assume the best way to go through life is to believe in an afterlife of some yeah. sort. And yeah. so I just allow myself to believe that. And I go through my existence like that and I don't care about whether it's right or wrong. Cause I know you don't know or right. anybody else. And I don't know. So I really don't care because deeply I'm an agnostic person. Yeah. Like I believe that, you know, God is not knowable by man. I believe that God probably exists, but human mind can't conceive of whatever that is. And I am comfortable with that. I'm pretty agnostic about everything. I'm agnostic about reality. I'm sure. agnostic <laughs> about where we're going to go to eat. So right. I, I'm agnostic almost about every aspect of my existence. So agnostic, uh, my agnostic view of, of spirituality is very comfortable for me. I, I, I'm okay not knowing, but I do 
so I'm not going to listen to an atheist and I'm not going to listen to a, a, a Bible person. I, I know yeah. that neither one knows. Exactly. Nobody knows. Now, uh, you know, I'm an atheist, but I, I hope I'm wrong. And if I am wrong, I do hope that you get to pick who you want to hang out with in the afterlife. I think it's probably likely you're going to get reincarnated anyway. It would be nice if I could, if I, if, if, if I go to the afterlife and then I can continue making podcasts with Swilson. It would no, be, that would be great. You know, what, be, imagine the guests we could have. Right. Exactly. It would be a drag if I had to be with my abusive alcoholic family for forever when I, when I die. That you would probably, you probably work. wouldn't be because you've cultivated such a, a large family outside of your family for so long. And I don't know that your family or your, your biological family doesn't even qualify, I don't think. I had a conversation. We're going to get to the song in just a second, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had a conversation. You know, I work in the mental health field. I had a conversation with uh, one of my clients about this uh, a couple of years back. And, uh, and I was explaining to him because he was like, how come you don't believe in God? And I was like, well, you, you know, I don't know, not really any evidence of it. And I was like, and also, you know, I explained to him like, you know, when I was a kid, they said, when you go uh, you go to heaven, you have to be with your family. I don't want to be with my family. And he's like, uh, well, you, you do have to uh, be with your family, but you get to choose who it's going to be. And I'm like, well, okay, so who are you going to choose? And he's like, hey, you know, I got a couple of cousins that are okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be him and a couple of his cousins, I guess, you know. So, yeah. so I guess if you get to choose, then that's a little bit better, you know. But what about all the people that love you and want to be with you and you don't want to be with them? I mean, it gets very confusing, right? It gets complicated up there. It does get um, complicated. Yeah. I mean, I think the uh, the hope is is that the ego dissolves uh, in some way and, uh, you know, you become the part of the super being, whatever that is, superpower. Yeah. All right. You know, that's in the meantime... <laughs> in the meantime, we're talking about a superpower. Did we even play the song yet? We still have Let's to play get the, the song, song, everybody. It's the best song of the week. It's a, it's a gospel song. And you're going to love it. Whether you're, I, I don't care what side of the fence you're on with religion. You're going to love the song. Natalie Bergman, everybody. Talk to the Lord. It's the best song of the week on Advanced Demonology.
All right, Wilson, we're back. Wow, that's the uh, that's the gospel portion of the show. I think, as far as I, I think, know, I mean, you know, I maybe is there more gospel? I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out. We, we already had another gospel song before that. Let's get uh, let's get back into it. Little chain in the gang. Why not? We've played, we've played them before, haven't we? I don't know if we've played Chain in the Gang before, um, but uh, you know, I know we're both fond of. Chain of the Gang. I have a Chain of the Gang poster on in my stairway. Yeah. Um, and uh, this one is uh, another stripped down garage punk banger. I uh, I wasn't sure. I've been listening to this record a lot. Um, I haven't been. And I thought, well, why have we have we played Chain in the Gang before? And I thought, yeah, I honest, honestly don't think we have. Yeah, I thought, why not? Let's play Chain in the Gang. Um this song um, is from Music's Not For Everyone. It's a uh, masterful ode to apathy. I, uh, I was sold as soon as he says the line, I got in a car with people that I didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as yeah. I heard that, I was all in. Yeah. You know, uh, I love Chain of the Gang. Ian Savonius from The Makeup, which is another fabulous rock and roll band and a bunch of other projects. Of course, uh, Nation of Ulysses, which... If you listen to one kind of Discord error hardcore band, that's the band you should listen to. Um, I love love all of his music. I met him one time at a, a makeup show. Okay. He he actually got off stage and walked over to me and introduced himself to me, which is wow. 
one of the most uh one of the most rock and roll moves I've ever seen anyone do. It was uh, he like uh did he introduce himself because he was like holy smokes is that the front man from Swilson over there? No, I wasn't in a band at the time. He said he cut so he, he gets off stage and they're you know they're taking their gear off and all this stuff and you know it was with uh he was playing with Brother JT and Viberlocks. That was the other band I was playing which is a great band from Philadelphia. I was in Philadelphia and he gets off the stage and he comes over to me and he goes, "Hey, I'd he goes, hey, uh, I just want to tell you, you look like the guy from the other guy in T-Rex. <laughs> and he goes, what's his name? And I go, uh, Mickey Finn. He goes, right. yeah, you look like Mickey Finn. Yeah, he you goes, do look a little like Mickey Finn. I don't know. Maybe I did. I didn't have a beard then. And he goes, um, what's your name? And I told him my name. And he goes, oh, I'm Ian. Uh, you know, and I just was watching him on stage. Like, oh, yeah, hey, nice to meet you. But I, I thought it was really nice of him. And yeah. uh, I've always liked – I liked the show. I liked the makeup. And I've never not liked his music uh, since then. So uh, I'm a big fan of Ian Savonius. Uh, yeah, uh, great band. Kind of a, a refined pussy galore. A much, what, uh, yeah, they are refined. Very refined pussy galore. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and um, rock band. And I remember um, when this particular uh, record was coming out, like part of the ad campaign for it was um, they only wanted cool people to buy it. So they were discouraging, <laughs> like in, in ads and in, in uh, magazine stuff, they were discouraging people from buying it because they didn't want uncool people to buy the record. So I don't know if that is it worked or not. I don't know if everybody that owns this record is cool, but uh, at least one person is. And yeah, that's it's, kind of, it's reverse psychology. Because <laughs> that's all yeah. ad campaigns are about. Like you're cool if you buy this, right? It, exactly. Like you're not you. I don't you. I don't. You're only cool if you buy. It still was the same thing, but in a different way. That's very smart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Chaining the gang, everybody. Let's get into it. Why not? On advanced demonology. Shall we listen? Why not? Who cares anymore? Why not? Who cares anymore? Why not? Who cares anymore? I ate on the bed, I slept on the floor, I left the key hanging in the door. Why not? Who cares anymore? I got in that car with people that I didn't even know. I disregarded good doctor's note. I took them all. I don't even know what they are. I took that joke just a little too far. Why not? Oh, why not? Why not? Who cares
the phone Without even saying goodbye I walk past people I know Without saying hi I blew out the candle Without making a wish I ate my dinner And of the dog's dish Everything? Often the teenage girl acts as if she does, or thinks she does. Her world is uniquely her own. Everyone else is rigorously excluded, except other teenagers. And this teenage world looks to outsiders like a complete, self-sufficient entity, with its inhabitants possessors of the answers to all the questions that plague the rest of us.
And even though the future looms especially large in their young lives, they're primarily interested, like everybody else, in the present. One paramount concern of girls is, of course, boys. Yeah. 
when it comes to personal, everyday problems, the questions to which they'd most like the answers, they don't always know just where to turn for guidance. Some grown-ups are okay, but they're too remote. Even if they understood a teenager's problems, they wouldn't really care.
As for parents, they're not only too far removed in age, but too uncomfortably close in other ways. They'd get it all wrong and care too much. So the teenage girl often takes her problems to a girlfriend. But since the girlfriend's knowledge of the world is hardly any broader than her own, she can't always be relied on to help. What the teenage girl needs is a wise, steadfast friend who knows the world, especially the world of teenagers. A friend who understands them and respects their privacy. A friend they can trust.
All right, everybody, we're back. And again, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, Wilson and I have been listening to a lot of uh, soundtrack music. This is a great one, though. Simonetti, Pagnatelli, and Morante uh, with the theme song for Tenebrae. So Stacy and I, uh, my wife Stacy and I, watch a Giallo movie every Saturday night. Smart move. Giallo Saturdays, as we call them. Giallos, if you don't know, are violent murder mysteries produced in Italy in the 60s and the 70s and a little bit in the 80s. Very stylish and colorful. Dario Argento is the king of Giallos. And uh, 1977's Suspiria, which also has a great score, is his most famous film. And the band Goblin did many of his uh, soundtracks. In 1982, he made a film called uh, Tenebrae. Uh, Stacy and I watched it a couple months ago. It's about an American writer who thinks a serial killer is copycatting, uh, copycatting mur- or murders from his books. Um, it's really good, and I especially love the soundtrack. Argento wanted Goblin to do it, but uh, they had broken up at that point. But uh, three of the four guys got together and did it. And, uh, and it's one of uh, the, their best soundtracks. Um, I got it on CD. The vinyl is crazy expensive these days. But... Um, I love this. I, you know, I love that that weird bow, 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 yeah. like wh- whatever. I don't even know what. I mean, it's a synthesizer, but I don't know what sound that kind of is. But it's um, I, I just I just love this one a lot. And uh, Jello Saturdays has really gotten me into soundtracks in a big way because um, honestly, they, their their soundtracks were fantastic. Yeah, uh, that's one of the best things about Jello is the music. I think that's the most. I mean, there's so many good, so much good stuff about that genre. But the thing that is at the top of the list for me is the soundtrack. Yeah, for sure. And at the at the moment, um, there's if for whatever reason, there's been a little bit of a, a renaissance with uh, labels like Mondo and Death Waltz, where they are releasing a lot of um, soundtracks um, for you know obscure cult um, films lately, which has been yeah. great. And um, yeah, and uh, just this was like a few years ago they they released the uh, Tenebrae on uh, on on vinyl and it's completely out of print now, but um, well worth it if you ever find it. Um, great, great soundtrack. Uh, before that, it was Pearl Charles with Only for Tonight. Uh, Pearl Charles is a singer songwriter from L.A. who I really like, and her music is usually uh, much different from this. Her sound is usually like a Laurel Canyon inspired cosmic Americana. Yeah, but she goes uh, full on ABBA on this song. Definitely. Uh, and it's great. It sounds like ABBA. It's the lead track on her new album, uh, Magic Mirror, which uh, aside from this song, is very much in the vein of like, you know, Judy Sill mixed with Jackie DeShannon. And it is a great record. It just sounds different from this song. But uh, this song is, uh, I thought, really awesome. Um, so check it out. It's a, it's a great record. Pearl Charles, only for tonight. And uh, on a much different note, before that, it was Demon Pact with Eaten Alive. Eaten Alive, uh, 1981, new wave of British heavy metal band. They just put out demos, like all great new wave of British heavy metal bands. And they put out a single. This is their single, Eaten Alive. I I don't know what was on the B-side because I got this off the Job Center Rejects comps. Uh, do you have those, Ken? Uh, yeah, I've, I've, um, I think I've reviewed a couple of them for, uh, for Classic Rock. Yeah, they're great. They're amazing. Um, really, really great compilations of, uh, new wave of British heavy metal, like, uh, but more towards the punk end of it. Um, you know, less Iron Maiden and more Venom. Kind yeah. Of. And in fact, this song is very Venomy. And, um, and this dude, I forget his name, but this, um, vocalist is one of my favorite of that, 
uh, of the NWOBHM um, up there with Algie Ward and uh, yeah, in Chronos. He's just a just a great abrasive uh, vocalist. Yeah, and very menacing mm, for sure. Um, Demon Pact Alive. Which volume of Job Center Rejects is that from? Volume two, ladies volume and gentlemen. Two. I recommend them all, though. I, I buy them. As soon as they come out, I buy them. Before that, Quintron with Teenagers Don't Know Shit. Uh, when is this from? It's from uh, last year. It came out 2020. This is great. Quintron, a.k.a. Uh, Robert Ralston, is a mysterious one-man band from New Orleans. He plays a custom-made Hammond organ shaped like the front of a car with you know working headlights and he invented all kinds of crazy stuff, like a robot drummer. You know, he's a tinkerer with sound and stuff and lights and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he performs solo and sometimes with his wife, Miss Pussycat, who is a puppeteer, who uh, also sings and plays the maracas. They're kind of, they're kind of like a, a whimsical version of the cramps. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Quintron and uh, Miss Pussycat. Uh, this song is from their new album, Goblin Alert. Whole album is full of fun, catchy garage rock, but I especially love this song because, uh, for one thing, it's got a cowbell, which is awesome, uh, and it's also got that Peter Frampton voice box thing, which I like. But I also, love that. <laughs> but also, I mean, it's true. Teenagers don't know shit, but they're very confident despite that. Oh, I don't. Is, I know it. Which is one of the endearing. And also frustrating things about teenagers, and uh, and I just the the lyrics in this are just very funny. They'll fuck up your house and they can't fix a car. <laughs> it's true, right? Yeah, you know what? I also I was thinking about this because I've written um, some of the new Swilson songs are uh, vaguely anti-teenage and yeah. anti-youth and pro-elderly. Yep, I've gone in that mode. And yeah. I've, 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 I've realized that rock and roll has lived long enough to become anti-youth move music. Yeah. And you know, this is a, an anti-youth. And I was like, yeah, teenagers don't know shit. I mean, I really bond. I mean, I'm, I'm surrounded by teenagers for my work and all that stuff. So I do feel like they don't know shit sometimes and they're very confident, but that's what makes it great. And it's a great time in life, but this is an amazing song. I mean, I, I love that rock and roll has been around so long <laughs> that it's now anti-youth music. Yeah, exactly. Cause these guys, they've been around for a long time. They're, they're probably around your age, I would guess. Yeah. Um, this wasn't five years younger than me. Um, so they're in their forties somewhere and they, and they've had it with teenagers and, uh, and that's what this song is about. <laughs> Right. Top of, side, top of the side, it was Chain and the Gang with uh, Why Not. Let's get right back into it. Besides um, soundtracks, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of soul music these days. Yeah, good stuff. This is a soul song, Otis Clay, Trying to Live My Life Without You. Otis Clay was a soul singer from Chicago. He died in uh, 2016, age 73. And, uh, and while he made it into the Blues Hall of Fame in 2013, he was never all that successful, really. Um, I had never heard of him until this album was issue, reissued a couple of years ago. Um, this is a title track from his 1973 album. It was his biggest hit. Made it all the way, Swilson, to number 102 on the Billboard charts. Wow. Well, he which, cracked the charts, so that's good. Which, which did make me wonder, how long is that chart? Is it like, if I feel like 100 should be enough. 
that's like, 200, right? I think. Oh, it goes to no, 200. Okay. I think, right. but I could be wrong. Someone's going to write an angry letter. I was wondering if maybe it was 500. I think it's 200. I, 200 makes more sense, although 100 seems like it would be plenty. 100 is plenty. But anyway, he made it to 102. Um, anyway, 10 years later, um, which would be, you know, um, it, it was, uh, well, it was like eight years later, um, Bob Seeger covered it. Oh, wow. And, and of course, it was a top five hit because Bob, it was 1981 at this point, and Bob Seeger was huge in 1981. He really was. He owned 1981. He really did. It was, a, it was the year of, of the Seeger. But uh, Otis did it first. If you ask me, he did it better. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Bob um, would agree. Whole album is great, as is his 1977 follow-up, I Can't Take It, which is, uh, I believe, has also been reissued. Uh, anyway, let's get into it. think you're going to like it. Otis Clay, everybody, with Trying to Live My Life Without You on Advanced Demonology.
Queen. Welcome to perfection, where there's nothing new under the sun. We plan ahead. That way we don't do anything right now. But under the ground. What the hell are they? It's big. These creatures are absolutely unprecedented. It's mean. It's ugly. Stinks too. And worst of all, it's hungry. Kevin Bacon. Tremors. Rated PG-13 may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now 
summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. Two city boys, just one break from the big time. Mickey Rook, Eric Roberts, Daryl Hannah, a television premiere, The Pope of Greenwich Village. Tonight at 8, only on Channel 11. All summer long. Greatest adventure. 
Mel Gibson in Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome, starring Tina Turner. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now playing at a select theater near you. Check newspapers for listing. All right, we're back, everybody. That was the Village Callers with yeah the Frog. So that's not our live at last, but I just couldn't resist. This one is a, a real mover. Can I tell you something? I listened to the whole record after hearing this, and uh, and it's a, it's an awesome record. It's super funky and raw. I have never heard of this band before. Don't know who they are, where they come from. I hope Swilson is going to fill us in. So, I mean, this is record is uh, slowly becoming one of my favorite records of all time. I cannot stop listening to it. I think it's just a fabulous, amazing record. It's just called Live. The Village Callers were just like a live Latin soul band from East L.A., local Los Angeles band. Did not really make it big outside of L.A. Had a hit in L.A. on the radio uh, with, I believe, a song called Hector. I forget the name of it. Um, it was That's on exactly the... exactly right. I remember because I listened to it last night. It's Hector. You're yeah, right. Yeah, it's Hector. And that was actually... I, I, I This song has been... This stuff has been sampled. Like Hector and stuff has been sampled in rap music. Um, and so I was familiar with some of the banter and stuff. And then I heard one song on the... Um, on the, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood soundtrack. And I was like, well, this is really good. Um... Let me just check out the rest of the record. But I thought the rest of the record was going to be all loungy or something. I didn't know what I thought it was going to be. I was not prepared for how fantastic the whole record is. It's so it was recorded live. It was it's a real live recording, which is two microphones over the stage. Um, They the record did well in Los Angeles. They played around a lot from Los Angeles to Vegas, and eventually, you know, they just all got older and moved on to other things. And the one main guy in the band, uh, Hector, I believe, uh, was a guy in the band. Uh, he ended up becoming uh, the, there's a, a chief horticulturist for the city of Los Angeles for their parks department, you know, stuff like that. They just got absorbed into everyday, back into yeah. everyday LA society. But they were just a working club band in the 60s. And uh, this really captures it. And when you when you listen to this, you go, God, how many other great bands were out there at that time? You know, you just walk into a restaurant in LA right. and hear this. I mean, this is unbelievable. You just you don't have anything like that now. You know, uh, there's just not a there's not a live music scene outside of. I know there's cover bands, and I think that's cool, but but they tend to try to be very faithful to the radio, where yeah. where you know you just don't. There's not as much live. There used to be live music everywhere. Um, exactly, so, and there also used to be. Um, so bands would uh, have residencies and they would play the same club for a year and they're playing, you know, six days a week, you know, three, four sets a, a night. So bands became super, super tight in ways that uh, a band today that rehearses, you know, once a week and plays once every six weeks are, is just never going to achieve, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, like, you know, I read something where, you know, there's an organ player named Jimmy Smith, you know, this guy, he's a jazz organ player. Yeah. Um, and so Jimmy Smith got real popular in the mid six, mid to late mid sixties. And they said that Jimmy Smith got so popular that in, in the black community, every corner bar had a jazz Hammond organ player 
like during the age when Jimmy Smith was popular for a couple of years. So you can go to every, any bar and there would be a, a Hammond organ player playing. I want that. Like I would go and hang out in a bar where there was a Hammond organ player playing. Now, yeah. You know, you know, sure. You just don't see it anymore. But anyway, this, this really captures that. You can hear the glasses clinking in the background. And uh, this is just, just a, such a great, great record and a great song. Yeah. Uh, cool stuff. The village callers, everybody at the frog. Before that, it was our old pal, Alice Cooper with our love will change the world. So uh, Alice has a new album. It's called Detroit Stories, dedicated to the town that made him famous. Uh, it's a great album. It's produced by Bob Ezrin. It has, um, the, you know, uh, the original Alice Cooper band playing on it. Uh, Wayne Kramer's on it. Um, it's got originals and it's got a few covers, including Bob Seger, MC5, Lou Reed, and this one, which is originally by um, Detroit band Outrageous Cherry. Oh, Wow. So they're a Detroit psych pop band that released over a dozen albums from the 90s to 2013, none of which I'd ever heard. Now, I've heard the name before, Outrageous Cherry. Yeah, but I, I never, I, yeah I, I never heard the band before, and I had no idea this was even a cover at first. Um, the original is very easy to find. It's on YouTube, um, and both versions are great. But I think Alice did a fantastic job on this. Part of why I didn't know it was a cover is that it could easily fit into Alice's worldview, by the way. Yeah. Because Alice is a conservative, but he can't really be a conservative, um, because he's Alice Cooper. Yeah. I think he's mostly a conservative because he doesn't want to pay taxes. So uh, he usually wraps his political messages in sarcasm, and that's what this song does, too. Um, Stacy and I thought this was his reaction to progressive politicians uh, before we found out it was a cover. If you listen to the, <laughs> the lyrics. Anyway, um, it's the best song on a really good record. I'm excited. Um, I've been dying to hear this record, and I keep re- forgetting to listen to it. I was so excited when you put this on. Uh, it's um, it's my favorite Alice Cooper record since, um, like, the first record he did um, when he was like, I, when the Garage Revival was happening, I was the, uh, the I believe, the eyes of Alice Cooper. Was yeah. the first one where he had uh, Wayne Kramer play on, because um, I remember interviewing him around that time for about it, um, and it was like him getting back into the sort of hard rock groove after spending all this time doing um, metal. Basically, you know, he did metal throughout the '80s, and then he did you know Dragon Town and that kind of little new metal, progressive metal tinge stuff, and then he was like, "Nah, fuck it, I'm just going to go back to playing hard rock." Um, and this is this this is the the best one that he's done since since that that first one that he did when he went back to it. It's just a it's just a great record all around. And this song is very different from um, modern day Alice Cooper too, but um, it's just so catchy, you know. And uh, yeah, it's just a really good song. Anyway, Alice Cooper, I love will change the world from Detroit Stories, which I definitely suggest you go out and get because uh, it's a great record. And on a very different note, it's uh, before that it was Jean Bernard Rat- Rateau with uh, Catherine Rything. Yeah, this is uh, from the Demons, uh, Les Demons. Uh, say Jess Franco movie, I believe. Did you watch this movie, Ken? The Demons. Well, here's, here's what's interesting is that um, just recently, I got both volumes of uh, Stephen Thrower's um, Jess Franco filmography books. First one's called Flower of, Flowers of Perversion. The second one's called Murder's Passions. 
Both of them are mammoth. They're like, you know, 500 pages each, like huge volumes. Um, and I have such a weird relationship with Just Franco's movies because they are mostly terrible movies, yeah. but they have all these fantastic elements, great scores, awesome set designs and wardrobes, beautiful actresses, weird characters, tons of nudity and violence. He should be my favorite filmmaker, Swilson. <laughs> I but know. There's, there's very few of his films that I can actually sit through. And he's made six, he made 600 films. It's, it's painful. I've, I have the same relationship. He's, I, I want to like him so much. Me too. And I try over and over again. I've tried so much that I like him officially, but I don't know that I like any of his movies. Like, I think the best Jess Franco experience for me would be if you just took some clips. Yes. Um, like, and you made like a compilation of clips from Jess Franco movies and, and with the music. And I would just watch those. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he should be great. He worked for Orson Welles and stuff, right? Right. I mean, I mean, but he's just not. He just, just his movies, in. They're just really tedious. And, and, and it's so strange because it's all the things that I like, you know. And, you know, his work is not all that different from, say, you know, other cult filmmakers like John Rolin or, or uh, uh, Dario Argento or, you know, uh, Lucio Fulci, who all make really compelling and watch, watchable films. For some reason, just Franco just made stuff that was just fucking unwatchable. But I, I still want to be in the Franco world. I, I love reading about him. I love looking at, at, at clips from his movies. I love the soundtracks. I just can't get through, um, like maybe Vampire, Pyros Lesbos, or maybe uh, I watched Bloody Moon recently, which is like yeah. a 1981 slasher, which was pretty good. But most of them are just fucking impossible to, to, to get through. No, but, he's just a profoundly boring filmmaker. He takes exactly. exciting subjects and makes them so boring. It's just like there's almost, he's almost a master of boredom. Yeah, exactly. It's so strange. But I also feel like maybe at some point it'll click in, you know, like I'm keeping my options open that someday, you know, they'll release some like crazy box set or something and I'll pick it up and I'll start putting them in and then I'll, I'll get it, you know. Um, who knows? Who knows? So, I mean, uh, I'm going to keep watching his movies regardless, but I, they are pretty bad. They're terrible, but I'm still, if you, if you, if you mention it to me, I'm a, it's, I find the whole thing exciting. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I find the, the just Franco experience exciting. The actual movies, you know, there was, there's a lot of filmmakers like that, like HG Lewis, for example, you know, oh, his, yeah, I was movies, say that. his movies are impossible to, to, to sit through at least the, the horror ones, the sexploitation ones are a little better, but the, his horror movies are impossible to sit through, but they're endlessly entertaining to think about and, and to read about and to talk about. Yes. Uh, Andy Milligan is another guy. Terrible, terrible filmmaker, but uh, incredibly fun to read about, to think about, to, to talk about. And Jess Franco is the, is, the, is the same way. It's just something about it, you know. Um, a lot of John Waters' early stuff is kind of hard to, to watch and get through. But he's endlessly fascinating to think about and read about and to talk about, you know. Um, there's just some, it's just what a cult is about, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it was the spirit of the anti-culture, you know what I mean? Those guys embodied that, you know, we had a mainstream Hollywood and we had an underground, the underground 
was working with limited budget, limited time, and limited talent, mm. uh, which also was part of it, you know. But uh, I agree. I love. I mean, I support all those guys, and I, you know, even Al Adamson, who I love, but some yeah. of his movies you can't—they're not really good. I mean, you know, I love. Uh, Satan Sadist. I mean, that's actually a good movie. But that is actually a good movie, and he's another guy too. Um, they, last year they released the Al Adamson box set, um, which I immediately got. You know, yeah. And uh, and half of them are just fucking impossible to sit through. I mean, like Hell's Bloody Devils feels like it's three hours long. You know, I know it's I mean, so boring. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I love the idea of Al Adamson so much. You know. Oh, so did you watch the documentary about his life? Yeah, it was great. It was really good and really sad. I mean, he's freaking some deranged buddy of his basically killed him. Yeah. It was really exciting when they were like, you know, um, when they had the footage of them like um, digging up the, the pool and yeah. finding the body underneath. I mean, that was that was some wild shit. It was riveting. I mean, it was a really, really crazy story. And then there was the whole part where, Sam Sherman was talking about how they were working on the UFO documentary and then he couldn't really talk about it, you know, because yeah. too much heavy shit involved with the UFO documentary. It's like, what are you talking about, man? You know, I know. I know. <laughs> it was this whole side trip through this like shocking UFO uh, information that he has that he can't reveal to the world, you know. But uh, anyway, the point is that was from uh, Jess Franco's Demons. Yeah, this is uh, released on Finders Keepers Records. Uh, it's an amazing soundtrack. Uh, there's not much information on the the composer. If you look on IMDb, he was basically a porno music composer for like softcore porn. Yeah. He did like three or four things. So I'm thinking maybe it was an alias um, because the guy is really competent. Like he really knows what he's doing. Yeah. So I've, I'm wondering if the his, Gene uh, Bernard – uh, did you, was there liner notes on that finer keepers thing that you bought? Did you get the record? No, I don't have the record. Oh, okay. Uh, cause I want to get the record, but of course it's like, you can't get it now. It's yeah. like $200 or something ridiculous. <laughs> um, the reissue. But, uh, I was wondering if there's more information about him on there. I don't really know. I couldn't find much. I found an IMDB thing and it was all, it, not all, there was only like four movies, all softcore uh, porn. One of them was just, another one was just Franco. I forget which one it was. Uh, Jean-Bernard Jean Reto, Kathleen Riding, Riding, and uh, at the top, it was Otis Clay with Trying to Live My Life Without You. And that brings us, Swilson, to the end of the show and our last cut, which is, of course, live at last. Uh, so here's what's up. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, 80s German thrash metal. Me too. In particular, Destruction, Sodom, and Creator. Yeah, what do they call those? The big three of Teutonic. What do they call it? Um, yeah, the big, the big three of Teutonic Thrash, right? Teutonic Thrash. Those, all three of those bands are great. Fantastic bands. Yeah, and I don't know. Like a month ago or so, Creator released um, an awesome uh, box set, which I picked up called Under the Guillotine. Wow. Which collects their first six albums, plus um, a DVD with a documentary and two live shows on it, uh, which the song's from, as well as a reproduction of their cassette demo when they were still Tormentor. Which and is also, good, that Tormentor demo. 
Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, also a little uh, creator demon action figure, Swilson, that you pull apart and it's a USB stick with all of the songs on it. <laughs> but it's pretty fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and so this is a live track from the box set, uh, Live at Dynamo, which is a big metal festival in the Netherlands. Uh, we should go to Dynamo someday, Swilson. That would be great. You and I. Just you and I. We'll, we'll leave the families at home. Tell them we'll be back in a week. Go to fucking Dynamo. I will, uh, I will hold you to that. I would love to do that. I think it would be a great trip. It's from their, it's originally from their 1988 live album, Out of the Dark, Into the Light. It's creator, everybody, with Love Us or Hate Us. Uh, by the way, before we go, check out Swilson on Bandcamp, swilson13.bandcamp.com. You can also, uh, we have our own uh, um, YouTube uh, channel, youtube.com slash Advanced Demonology Podcast. You can also listen to my weekly horror podcast, The Heavy Leather Horror Show, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, anything else, Wilson, that you want to plug? No, not right now. Just, uh, you know, keep on keeping on. Don't forget, everybody, keep your skates on tight. Keep jamming it to the ramp. (laughs) I haven't heard that one in a while. And whatever you do, don't break the oath. Don't break it. See you next time on Advanced Demonology. Love us or hate us. Try to tell us what is right for us. We don't give a fuck anyway. Imagination from us Things we believe in We will never betray Never betray The world to Talk to us to us away Those who never can create the music of today Feeling. Not the message of my mind Says it's something that you feel That it's something that